Support comes from Mosby Building Arts, a design-build company committed to remodeling the right way. Visit callmosby.com to get project inspiration for any room of your house. This is a special edition of The Gateway. I'm Wayne Pratt. Five years after the death of Michael Brown Jr., the St. Louis Public Radio newsroom has created Living Ferguson, a project that explores the experiences of black residents throughout the region. As part of that project, St. Louis Public Radio's Marissa Ann Lewis-Thompson spoke with Michael Brown Sr. In this extended interview, he talks about the day that changed his life. August 9th, 2014 is a day that will be remembered in history. An unarmed black teenager was shot and killed by a white police officer. Within days, a movement surrounding policing and racial profiling of black people would reemerge. But for Michael Brown Sr., that day started like any other. I went to work 5.30 in the morning. Got off about 10 because it was a slow day. Our house had burned down, so we were staying with uh, Cal's mother and uncle at the time. And uh, she was doing laundry. I helped her do the laundry. And uh, my mother called probably about 11 and told me she had a bad feeling and I need to go get Mike. And I told her when I get done folding these clothes, I go over there and get them, you know. And uh, I got a phone call that he was uh, laying in the middle of the street, dead. The weeks leading up to Michael Brown Jr. being shot and killed were a mixed bag of joy and loss. That summer, Michael Brown Sr. and his wife Cal had just lost their home to a fire. Their blended family of eight kids bounced between motels and staying with family. And a month later, they got married. His son Mike Mike, as they called him, was his best man. But the highlight that summer was Mike finally graduating from Normandy High School. That was August 1st. For his dad, it was a big deal. And with school out, Mike was living it up, chilling with friends, and on the side, spending time with his grandma in Ferguson. He was over there for just a weekend before he started college. So we was giving him time to just breathe for a little bit, you know. A few days later, Mike called his dad to check on his stepmom, Cal. She was in the hospital. They talked for a bit. The phone call ends. And that was the last time he heard his son's voice. And then came the other call, the one that changed his life. My mind went to, I couldn't even tell you, I was somewhere in a dark place. Uh, I went straight to a tunnel. You know, I just was like, Everything is moving too slow for me. I need to go there. You know, like, it's hard to explain. Um, But just trying to get to where he's at, you know, and and it's like people ain't moving fast enough or, you know, uh, like almost in the matrix, (laughs) you know. But uh, we end up getting in the car and, I, I I actually don't even remember the ride. I just remember being jerked around. You know, um, Cal's mother was driving, so they say so crazy. I don't remember. 
I just remember my body getting thrown around from turns of the corners, and uh, eventually we were there. When you got there, mm. what do you remember next? Uh, one step out the car, Leslie ran past me, and she stopped, and she said, uh, this not true, is it, Michael? I said, I don't know. And she took off running, I ran behind her. We ran up into a big crowd. Um, the crowd was just so thick and, you know, and and police everywhere and people screaming and people talking, you know, and just trying to figure out what's going on, you know. Everything was a haze. He wasn't getting answers. The police blocked him from getting a closer look. But in the midst of the chaos, he started to recognize small details. A red hat and a pair of Nike flip-flops near the covered-up body looked just like the ones he and his son both wore to his wedding only weeks before. Those items kind of stood out to me, you know, um, even though he was covered up. And uh, it just kind of, I don't know. I still didn't want to believe it, you know. Um, but still not knowing, period. You know, overall, just still not knowing, but just saying uh, that's not him, you know. Um, just just trying to get people to answer questions and get answers. And um, nobody giving us the information we need. A friend of his son's walked up to him and confirmed all of his fears. The nameless covered up black teen bleeding out in the middle of the street for hours on a hot summer day was his son. I knew for a fact that was him then. Uh, we were being disrespected, couldn't see him. He laid in the street so long, you know, four and a half hours. It just was ridiculous, you know, and, and having dogs barking at it. It was just, it was, and A.O.S. pointing in our face. It was, it was just a ridiculous day. It was, it was terrible. From there, things didn't get any easier. He didn't get to see his son's body until roughly two weeks later. After Mike was uh, laying on the ground for four and a half hours, uh, we had received a card uh, from the coroner uh, saying give them about an hour, hour and a half, and contact them and we can kind of come and um, identify the body. Um, that time came, that phone call was made, and uh, we were told that Mike had already been identified. At that point, I called his mama and asked her, did she go and go see him without me? She told me no. So it sent up uh, a red flag that uh, maybe law enforcement went and visited my son while he was, while he was there, you know, because uh, if she didn't go and identify, I didn't. Who else would it? Who else could have been? You know, so I felt like that was real strange. Um, I didn't see Mike until the private wake. We had a private wake for the family and friends, and we had a closed casket for his funeral. So um, that was the first time I ever seen him. What do you remember seeing him the first time? What was what was going on in your mind? I noticed that uh, I said something to Cal about the blood on his fingernail tips and stuff like that. You know, uh, I'm very a detailed guy, 
So when I when I come in this place, I'm I'm looking around. I'm I'm looking. You know, I'm I'm very observant. So uh, I looked at his fingers, and I was like. What, I said, it looked like it was a bunch of dirt. Why they didn't clean them up? And she was like, this probably was blood. You know, leftover blood that was in his fingers, you know. Uh, and then when I looked at his clothes, you know, his clothes, you know, that, that kind of camouflages everything else. But I looked in his face. Uh, he was just, you know, I, I they, they did a good job. Yeah, he was well put together. Uh, he looked at... Uh, he looked it in he looked it in peace to me you know um i was i was satisfied with the work that they did but i was still also still angry because of where he was laying at you know uh the overall situation you know um still the questions why and still the questions like you know uh if a person feel like they haven't done nothing wrong why they hiding in the and they you know why why are they not out here, why are they hiding and not being part of, you know, uh, St. Louis society still? And you have to move and do all this other stuff, and you know, just questions. You know, like if you never did nothing wrong, why can you just come to the family and apologize still for our loss? But you felt like that was something that you had to do at the time, which lets us know that he's he's full. Of said there was a moment when you looked at him that kind of took you back and it was a good moment mm. any parent would be happy about graduation mm-hmm. can you talk about that moment for you because you say you were just so um, proud and overjoyed yeah I was I was very happy you know um that he graduated uh it was a big accomplishment you know um that's just what a parent would love to see and, and know that their uh, their child has you know accomplished something where they can go further on and can and continue education in their life if if that's their choice. But uh, overall, just getting over that step, that hump, you know, uh, that was uh, a proud day for for me. Probably didn't him, you know, because uh, I struggled with school, you know, and. He struggled too, but he did it, you know. So that was just like the, like the biggest thing that ever happened. Like I, like I said, I probably was more prouder than him, you know. Uh, it was a happy moment. And I can still see it on your face, like <laughs> yeah, he did yeah, it. He did that, yeah. All Michael has now are the memories of his son's life scattered in photos. But the two sets of pictures that Michael reflects on the most capture the last week of his son's life. Moments from Mike's graduation and the photos from his son's autopsy. So I have some uh, some pictures of, uh, of him uh, mangled and uh, disrespected. Remember, by the time Michael got to the scene that day, his son was covered up. He didn't get to identify his body, which made moving forward even harder. But he needed closure, so he requested his son's autopsy photos last November. He got them in February. 
It was the first time that he saw a raw image of the way countless people saw his son in the street. The photos triggered strong, deep-rooted emotions. Definitely uh, revenge, uh, justice in my own way, um, just uh, upset, mad, all over again. Uh, but I definitely felt like I needed to see that because it was almost like it was a part in my life that I needed to get past because I always wanted to know, but then again, I didn't want to know. But then I was like, I got to know, to move forward. In order to know what my mission is um, in self, as far as the reason why I go out and I talk at schools and I do the stuff that I do, keep awareness, you know, still have to remind yourself, like, why am I doing this? And it really just, like, sparked that fire, like, I know why I'm doing this. Michael has been going to colleges all over the country to share his son's story. But Michael's story humanizes his son while challenging the misconceptions of what happened that day with the help of a documentary. He even holds panel discussions to talk about how life has been different for him. This is one way he's coping. I'm doing it out of anger and, and, and putting it in a positive in a positive space, you know, and doing it in a different type of way. So it's just... I, I, I get it, you know, I get it. But yeah, definitely, you know, uh, yeah. Them feelings came all the way back, you know, as far as like um, the person that's responsible for this. He's still working his way through that dark tunnel of emotions. Some days are better than others, but he often goes back to that moment where he was folding clothes. He says like any parent, he still feels guilty. If I hadn't have been folding no clothes and doing uh, stuff to help out, I'd have went on over there and got him. It would either been him or me or me and him or just me, you know, because if I had to pull it up on something like that, it'd, I wouldn't be here. And maybe I could have saved his life, you know, but... Uh, Yes, it, it definitely does bother me, you know, because I I would have been there with him, you know. I've been shot before, and uh, it's not a great feeling, you know, and, and just to know that he took multiple shots more than I have ever have taken, and just to know the pain and what, what what your skin and your body and your ligaments and your muscles, how they react after get being hit by a bullet, you know, when they shut down, they they get limp, you know, and just know that he uh, that he had to experience something like that. And plus, you know, taking something in the head like he did, it just, it, it bothers me, you know, because I, I know that feeling and and I I know what he had to feel before his, his fatal shots. You know, I know what he was feeling before his fatal shot, you know. And um, it definitely bothers me that he had to go through that, you know. Because that, that, that pain there is, is something that nobody, you know, first you feel the pain, then you feel the heat. You know, it's almost like your skin is healing back up after so much ripid fire, you know. It's, it's just a burning sensation. 
You know, it's like your your body just, you know, it's it's like it's 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 rehealing, but it's not healing fast enough. But you just going through the process of uh hard pain, like it in fire, you know. So just to know that he went through that, you know, it just Yeah, it bothers me. It definitely does. The days, weeks, and months that followed his death were a struggle for his family. Everywhere they went, Mike's name was brought up. Even at school, Michael and Cal's older kids had to deal with it. They went through uh, people asking questions, people having conversations. They didn't want to get involved in because they didn't want people to know who they was. If they wouldn't, you know, if they didn't have the, the, the last name, you know, they just didn't want people just to, to focus on them. Uh, sadly, they had to take like uh, different conversations. Uh, people was having conversations in the classes. Uh, one class, uh, one of the uh, the girls had, or they had to do a report on this. You know, uh, people was debating and having uh, different type of say souls, and they had to sit through all this, you know, and and, and listen. You know, uh, it was pretty devastating for them. You know. Um, just to know that people had their own mind and thought that, you know, uh, basically he deserved it, as they say. Um, them getting into arguments about the fight, tear up schools. Um, yeah, it just, it's been a lot. And grieving hasn't come any easier for their younger kids, who are still trying to make sense of everything. The little ones, you know, uh, still asking questions. Uh, Tyler asked Cal the other day, told her she missed Mike, you know, bust out crying. They had a conversation, you know. Uh, a lot of people don't know how bad and and effective that this can uh, be to our siblings. You know, uh, people seems to worry about they self and don't worry about uh, how other people are feeling, you know, uh, especially children. So definitely uh, just making sure they, they are uh, staying on the right path and, uh, and uh, getting the right uh, people to uh, express themselves to. You know, we all got a shrink, you know, uh, or a doctor. I say a doctor uh, that we talk to so uh, we can get some of those feelings out so they don't uh, explode the wrong way, you know. So, uh, but overall, has no one, no one hasn't forgotten about him. You know, um, his good, his jokes. Uh, it's fun time. Uh, it's laugh. Uh, everything that uh, every every uh, emotion, um, uh, character, everything that he put into this family, you know, had no one hasn't forgotten. You know, so uh, he still lives on. But uh, yeah, we we getting through. You know, and, and they are getting through the best way they can. But, you know, uh, you just got to stay positive with them and uh, make sure they stay on the right road. Even with all the support from family, friends, and even black fathers who've gone through the same thing, nothing seems to fill that void. Michael spends a lot of his time visiting his son at the cemetery, whether it's late at night or in the middle of the day, just sitting at his son's grave. 
It's the place where he lets his guard down and tells his son how he's feeling. You know your old dude still loves you, man. We ain't with no uh, People forget. I don't forget. You still here with me. I just tell him I miss him all the time. I just sit there. Sometimes I don't even say nothing. I just look at the ground. You know, um, it's just a, a, it's just a moment for me. You know, um, just taking time out and spending, spending time out there. You know, where it's peaceful. You know, anytime I go to Ferguson, you know, it's people blowing. People want to pull over, want to talk to me when I go to, you know, Ground Zero. This place is where I can go and I can sit and don't nobody bother me, and I can be in peace with him. The transition of him not being around, you know, it still uh, it still bothers the family. Uh, definitely me, you know. Uh, he's my firstborn, best friend, best man. You know, he he held a lot of positions in my life. That was Michael Brown Sr. reflecting on the life and death of his son, Michael Brown Jr. He spoke with St. Louis Public Radio's Marissa Ann Lewis-Thompson. This piece was edited by Maria Altman and Shula Newman. The profile of Michael Brown Sr. is just one part of a larger project the St. Louis Public Radio newsroom has produced. It's called Living Ferguson five years after the death of Michael Brown Jr. You can listen to other black residents from around the St. Louis region talk about their own observations and reflections about Ferguson, policing, and their hopes for the future. To hear those experiences, go to livingferguson.org. I'm Wayne Pratt. This has been The Gateway. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.